0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. During that dark hour in the history of the United States in the 1800s when the country was divided by this indiscriminate line, That when it bisected our country, it divided neighbor against neighbor and friend against friend and sometimes family member against family member in the Civil War. Julia Ward Howard was so deeply grieved by the scandalous division in our nation. She was moved to pen a poem that would remind our nation that no matter what kind of conflict we were going through, that God was still on the throne. God's truth would somehow prevail, as it always does, over all the confusing opinions of men. In spite of man's war and confusion and dissension, truth would prevail. And the poem was put to music and the song was sung as a solo at a gathering where President Lincoln was present. And the soloist would sing out those words that we've come to recognize. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword, and his truth is marching on. And you know how powerful the verses to that national hymn are. And reinforced by the chorus, glory, glory, hallelujah, His truth is marching on. And there's something very powerful about the lyrics of that song that just grips us with a truth, a comforting truth. His truth will march on. I'm concerned about truth today. I've had many conversations, not many as in multiple, but small conversations, M-I-N-I, many conversations, with a few people even this morning that we've touched on our concern for the survival of truth. If I would summarize our conversation, those words were never used, but I, I think we've touched on those things. We're concerned about what people are believing in today. We're concerned for where are the standard foundational truths that we once all embraced. So with that in mind, I want to go to a story in the Old Testament, the 36th chapter of Jeremiah. And I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We would have to read the entire chapter to get the whole story, but I'm going to summarize it for you. And then I will refer to that chapter at appropriate times. But there's a background here, and what it has to do with uh, is the subject of truth. Truth on trial. I I tried a lot of titles this morning. Any one of them could have worked. Uh, Their scorn for truth. Truth on trial. The death of truth. But you can see that what I'm trying to get at is I have a concern for the survival of truth, God's truth, not just truth generically, but God's truth, and how it's under attack today. The background of this story in the 36th chapter of Jeremiah, first of all, I want to introduce you to the players. The characters, there will be some names in here that we need to familiarize ourselves with and what part do they play in this story. So we have a man named Jeremiah. He's the prophet. We have a man named Barak. He's Jeremiah's secretary or his scribe. Jeremiah would dictate. Barak wrote it down. We have a king named Jehoiakim. He's the son of a good king, Josiah. Jehoiakim is not a good king. He's a vicious and ungodly king whose entire reign was only 11 years. We have a man named Elishama. This is the king's personal scribe or secretary. And we have a man named Jehudai. He's the king's messenger. There's another minor player in there by the name of Micaiah, who was also just somebody who brought word of what was going on. But that kind of introduces you to the characters here today. Second in the background of this story is just to share with you the condition of Israel at this time and share with you a little bit about the personality of the prophet Jeremiah. And something about the nature and the personal aspect of the ministry and the prophecies of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was called to be a prophet at a very early age. At the age of 14, God designates him and calls him to be a prophet. Jeremiah was the first of the Old Testament prophets to take prophecy to such a personal level. We find it in the other Old Testament prophets that they had made some mention of personal responsibility to the Lord, but by and large they were prophesying to the nation of Israel. And Jeremiah really focused in on this is not just a national problem. We have a national problem because we have a people problem. We have a personal problem. We have a heart problem. And when the people get right, the nation will get right. And Jeremiah zeroed in on that kind of a message. He's called the weeping prophet. Because he was more personally invested in how the people themselves were going astray. Sure, he felt bad for his nation going down the tubes. But he saw people behind this problem. He felt personal rejection when he would preach and people would dismiss him. Laugh at him. And unlike some of the other prophets who seemed to just let it roll off their back, Jeremiah took it so personally, God, they won't listen to me. And this is, the, this is the nature of his message and the nature of this very sensitive and very invested prophet. Under Josiah, when Jeremiah had prophesied, he saw... Josiah moved the kingdom back to God and do away with idol worship. And even though on a personal and individual level not every person made a rededication to the Lord, but as a nation they turned back to God because the king would make decrees. We're going to serve the Lord. We're not going to allow idols. Because you have these laws that have been established, people abide by those laws. And you know that people can abide by the rules and still not have their heart right. And that's basically what happened with Israel, is you can make national laws that you will not worship any idols, but you can't change people's hearts by making edicts like that. So Jeremiah comes to his people as Josiah, passes on, and Jehoiakim comes to the throne and reverses everything that Josiah has done. And it's time for Jeremiah once again to come with his prophecies, prophesying and speaking the word of the Lord against the wickedness of people and crying out for them to turn their hearts back to the Lord. And he confronts his people with very hard-hitting messages of truth. I know those of you who are acquainted with the work of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, realize that people didn't respond well to the truth. Not always. And So under Jehoiakim and Jeremiah, having lived long enough to remember Israel when they were living according to the laws of Deuteronomy... And they were doing well, and they were obedient to the Lord, and they were a a people who were set apart for the Lord. And drifting away from that, and being called back to it, and drifting away again, he had lived long enough to see the flow, and the ebb and tide, and the rise and fall. And it really bothered him to see his people up, and then down, then up, and then down. So as the 36th chapter begins, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah... At this point, they are under the rulership of Jehoiakim. Things are going downhill. and Jeremiah is discouraged. All the progress they had made, they are now losing under this wicked king. And God speaks to Jeremiah in the second verse and tells him, Get a scroll and write down all my messages against Israel, Judah, and the other nations. Begin with the first message back in the days of Josiah and write down every message right up to the present time. Perhaps the people of Judah will repent when they hear again all the terrible things I have planned for them. Then I will be able to forgive their sins and their wrongdoings. Twenty-three years of ministry. Not recorded And God tells Jeremiah, you go back and you take every sermon you preached. And you get you a clean scroll. And you write them down. And then we're going to go before the people and we're going to remind them of all the messages that have been preached. They have forgotten. You've preached it. They've forgotten But now we're going to put it in writing. And maybe this time when they hear it again, they'll remember. What a daunting task. Jeremiah needs help. So he goes and gets him a professional scribe. And Jeremiah says, my job is going to be trying to remember all the sermons I preached. I'm sympathetic to that. In the middle of the week... I will meet somebody who will tell me I enjoyed your sermon Sunday and what was that passage you... And I've already forgot it. Two days later, I can't remember what I preached on Sunday. And part of the reason I, is I'm, I, I kind of operate like my brain has this limited capacity. It has a very low memory capacity. Like a cheap computer. And I have to delete all the data from last Sunday to make room for the news. So I'm I moved on to something else. And so oftentimes you might see me standing there and you're talking about how wonderful that sermon is. And I'll be nodding like this, but I don't have a clue. And the more you tell it to me, I, I think, that, that must have been pretty good. I wish I was there. 23 years, I mean if God spoke to me and said start writing down sermons from the past 23 years, I would just say, I, I, no no, can do, <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> I'll see if I could get a half a page from last Sunday, that's about the best I can do. So Jeremiah, no doubt, <clears throat> bolstered by the power of the Lord, Makes arrangements with Barak. We have quite a job ahead of us. It's going to take days, weeks, months to get this done. But Jeremiah goes back and he begins to remember as the Lord moved on him and he spoke to Israel even back in the days of Josiah. And he preached again the message in the confines of that little room where the scribe was sitting there and Jeremiah's walking back and forth and remembering as the Holy Spirit brought the word to him. And he preached it again. And the scribe is writing. We don't know how long it took to write down 23 years of messages. But finally, they get the job done. And Jeremiah tells Barak, now I've got limitations on what I can do. I'm not a popular man in this kingdom. And uh, I have a restriction set on me. I cannot go near the temple area. But Barak, I want you to take the scroll and go to the temple. And it just happened to be the the year of the declared fast, which would be appropriate for people to be especially spiritual during this time. And more people than usual showing up at the temple. And they took advantage of that season, that occasion, when Barak went to the temple area. And he pulls out the scroll. And he begins to read the word of the Lord. Maybe there were theirs who remember. There were people there who remembered hearing that message the first time it was preached, and and no doubt there were people there that had never heard these words. And Beric begins to read. And something must have happened. It must have stirred the people to hear again. The word of the Lord that somewhere along the line they had dismissed, ignored, forgotten. And something, something was happening. A man named Micaiah is there, and he sees something developing. It's a huge concern to him, so he runs to Elishama, the secretary, the king's secretary. And he bursts into this room where Elishama is sitting there with several important men. We could call that his board or his cabinet. And he tells them something's going on down at the temple. There's a man down there reading the works of Jeremiah. And the people don't know what to make of it. But I just thought you ought to know. This is not usual. Somebody needs to look into this. And Elishma orders that Barak be brought to the secretary's room. And they fetch him and bring him in and said, w- w- what are you doing? What, what is this about? He said, these are the writings of Jeremiah. These are the sermons. The word of the Lord has been brought to this nation. Well, read them to us. And given that privilege and that opportunity, he opens the scroll and begins to Read. And something about the convicting power of God, something about the Holy Spirit begins to move in that room where those men are. And they sat there in stunned silence as they heard the word of the Lord being read, outlining their sins and their failures and the warnings from the Lord that you must turn from your sins because if you do not turn from your sins, this is what's going to happen to you. I don't know how much... He read to them. He read enough. And when he got done, these men were sitting there in stunned silence. What do you say? And Elisha was moved by this. He was shaken. They had come this far and ignored the word of the Lord. And he suddenly realizes what a dangerous position their nation is in. He said, the king has to know this. Somebody go tell the king, the word of the Lord is coming forth, and somebody needs to do something about this. So they send word to the king. The king sends his messenger Jehudi and says, "Go tell them to bring this scroll to me." It's winter time. The king is in a part of his palace where it is built for the winter weather. A little more secluded in the interior, not as exposed to the doors and the windows, and a huge fireplace in there to make it comfortable. And the king is in the fireplace room in this cooler weather. And Jehudai comes in there with the scroll. And he's followed evidently by some of the men that were with Elishaba at the boardroom, and some of them come along. A man named El Nathan, a man named Jeremiah, spelt with a G, a man named Deleah, as well as the king's men in this room. And Jehudiah opens the scroll and he begins to read. And he doesn't read very far. But the king takes out a knife and takes the scroll from him and that portion that he has read the king takes a knife and cuts it out and wads it up and throws it in the fire. Hands the scroll back to him and said read some more. And the messenger reads a little bit more and the king stops him and repeats that process. As he Removes that section from the scroll. And not only removes it, but he slices it to ribbons, throws it in the fire. Reads some more. And all the while that the king is doing this, there's El Nathan, there's Jeremiah with the And there's Deleah. And they're standing there in horror because this was not their response to the reading of the Word of God. And they are sensible enough to know that God's Word is being delivered to them. And this careless and thoughtless king, defiant and arrogant, is just tossing the Word of God away. And in horror, they cry out in protest, Don't do that! What are you doing? Of course they realize they have no power and authority against the king. And how ineffective and helpless they must have felt to watch section by section the king coldly, methodically, arrogantly tears it out and burns it up. As though to think all we have to do is burn the word of the Lord and it has no power and it has no effect. He was angry with the prophet. He was insulted that the word of the Lord would come through this prophet and the Holy Spirit would point his finger at him and blame him for the condition. Of the nation. He was insulted by the threats from the Lord. Either you repent or I will do this. He had a problem with truth. And we know at this time. Nebuchadnezzar. At the head of the mighty Babylonish empire. Was making his move. He had already gone to Egypt and conquered Egypt. And the shadow of Nebuchadnezzar's army was cast over the land of Israel, and they were next. And God is holding back the powers of Babylon, and through his prophet, crying out to his people and saying, Here's where you've gone wrong, but if you repent, if you repent. If you come back to me, I can spare you. But if you do not, you're going to lose everything you have. You're going to lose your land. You're going to lose your families. You must listen to me. I'm calling you back. I'm calling you to repentance. And the man who is at the head of the nation thumbs his nose at God and said, we don't want to hear these ridiculous accusations. These silly prophecies from God. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to take our land. And I'll show you what I think of the prophet. I'll show you what I think of the word of the Lord. It just destroys it. He gave no heed to the truth. He was angered by the truth. The truth was not a convenient thing for him. It was an embarrassment to his rulership over Israel. And the truth was a rebuke to the king's compromising ways. Now here's the effect that God's truth has on different people. First of all, there are people that when they hear the truth, they take responsibility. In this Congregation, we have here today many of you have already made your commitment to God. In almost any gathering on a Sunday, there may be people coming in that don't have their life together yet, but they're looking for a way to do that. But you can almost bank on the fact that most of the people coming into a church on Sunday they've got this relationship with the Lord, they understand who Jesus Christ is, they're trying to live for Him. But they've got a story, they've got a testimony, they came from somewhere, they had episodes in their life that is now a part of their past life, they've laid it behind them. But people here today, maybe it's you, when you heard about Jesus, you did the responsible thing. You quit relying on your own merits and your own goodness. And you realize that all of your goodness, all of your righteousness, everything you ever did to make you think that you're a fine person was nothing but filthy rags. That we are failures before God on our best day. And you heard about a Jesus that gave His life in sacrifice for you. That bore your sins to the cross. And paid the penalty. And you responded responsibly. You said, that's what I need. That's what's missing in my life. And you were given the opportunity to make that commitment to Jesus Christ. And you made that commitment. And you've been trying to live for Him ever since. You responded to the preaching of truth. Some of you came from a pretty rough background. Some of you can say, there's not much in my life that I did not try and those things I did not try, I probably would have tried if I'd have been there long enough and had the opportunity. But you heard the message of Jesus. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And you figured out you were lost. And the gospel, by its very definition, was good news to you. You heard That in this relationship with Jesus Christ, there's peace, and there's hope, and there's joy, and there's forgiveness, and there's healing, and you went for it. That's what I want. You tried the rest. Now you're going to try the best. And you haven't regretted it. Here you are. And then there's other people that you're a modern version of the prodigal son. You left what was good and you left family and you went seeking for the mysterious pleasures lurking in the shadows of this world. But one day when you woke up at the bottom, when you woke up in the pig pen and you realized that all that the world promised and everything that looked so flashy and so glamorous was all a lie. And everything that you had was slipping from you or already gone. And you didn't have any place to go because you were at the bottom. All you could do was just say, I wish I could go back home. I wish I could join my family again. And you came back and they celebrated that the, the lost child has found their way back home. Killed the fatted calf. Let's all rejoice. And you made your way back and you responded to the truth. There's those kinds of people here today. But then there's people that go in and out of the church like there's a revolving door. They hear, but they don't heed. I can preach, and I can lay clearly out, this is where we are, people. We're lost without Jesus Christ. We have no hope in eternity without Jesus. We need Jesus. And they will reject that. I don't want that. I don't want to be a religious nut. I don't need that kind of interference in my life. I've got my plans laid out. I've got things I want to do. And I'm out of here. As soon as the last song is sung and the amen is said, I'm out of here. It's just not for me. it's It's like they think that Jesus Christ is a choice on a buffet table. I like this, but I don't like that. Jesus is not an option that you can afford to just say, I just don't think that's for me. It's wrong-headed thinking. You're believing a lie. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And let's put the emphasis on Thee solely, distinctly, only. I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. That's truth. And you can't just say, I don't think I want some of that. And everything's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. Sure, you can reject him, but you're rejecting truth. These people, they they don't want to hear truth. We see examples weekly of people who scorn the absolute truth of the Bible and replace it with something more politically correct. And, And then there are pockets of Christianity, even within our own Area pockets of Christianity that they reject the truth. There was an article this past week about the number of people who identify themselves as progressive Christians in the United States. Now, if you have not heard the term progressive Christians, it's it's a, a valid term. It, it's a term that is uh, describes what is going on in. U.S. Christianity in the 21st century. And so progressive Christian from my vantage point is not a good thing. I would be, and I hate, I hate to use these terms because it almost sounds like it gets political and it's not, but I am what you would cons- could, can consider a conservative Christian. There's, there's a definition to that. A progressive Christian is not a conservative Christian. And so you can almost figure out the dividing line. And the issues that go along with that. The younger generation. Who doesn't want to totally throw their Christianity out the window. But they just don't buy into this old nonsense. the stuffy old theology. They're progressive Christians. It's. Technically, if you'll listen closely, progressive Christianity is the name given to a movement within modern-day Christianity. It's characterized by a willingness to question all traditions. Acceptance of human diversity with a strong emphasis on social justice or care for the poor and the oppressed, often identified as minority groups, and environmental stewardship of the earth. Progressive Christians have a deep belief in the centrality of the instructions to love one another. Let me pause for just a moment. My wife and I were behind a car yesterday. And I said, you see that bumper sticker? She said, yes, you do. Now here I'm going to get myself in trouble because it's probably somebody who's in church today. And I'm just going to lose your tithe before this is over. Don't know who was driving that car. Uh, she said, she read the bumper sticker and it said, love your mother. Well, oh, isn't that a nice, isn't that a nice message? Love your mother. And then right next to it was a picture of earth. Mother earth. It is very clear new age message. Love your mother earth. See, there's, there's things that are grabbing people here today. The worship of the planet we live on, worship of the environment, and thinking that the fulfillment of our gospel duties has nothing more to do with anything more than just making sure that they're fed and they're clothed and we're nice to people, and and promoting uh, the acceptance of diversity above accountability to God, and all of these namby-pamby philosophies that go along with progressive Christianity. Let me finish the definition here. Progressive Christians have a deep belief in the centrality of the instruction to love one another. So, see, love trumps everything. This leads to a focus on compassion and justice and mercy and tolerance and working towards solving societal problems of poverty and discrimination, environmental issues, and especially social and political activism. The bad theology that goes along with progressive Christianity includes such things as celebrating all the other religions of the world alongside Christianity as equally valid and emphasizing God's love above our accountability to God's moral standards. And progressive Christians are much less likely to see any moral absolutes in Christianity. In other words, just love each other and let everybody do their own thing. Consequently, these are enemies of truth because they have to invent their own truth. So now, as the study that I started off talking about says that progressive Christians... Those who profess to be progressive Christians in the United States now outnumber the number of people who claim to be conservative Christians. If you are a conservative Christian here today, you are now in Christendom in the minority. You are losing the propaganda battle and the number battle to those who are watering down the truth. That is shocking to me. Maybe it's more shocking to me because I am a pastor. I am a merchant of truth. I am one who promotes and deals in truth. I don't like to see my product losing ground. But we see a crisis of truth happening in this day and age that is absolutely alarming to me. And what even alarms me more is when the people who are compromising the truth and redefining the truth get a hold of our people, our young people, and get a hold of them through the educational system or wherever it happens and begin to twist their brains and they get this wrong-headed thinking about what is truth. That, that upsets me. I don't like them infecting the church with their junk, with their lies. There are then sworn enemies of truth. Have you been following in the news what's happening in the world today? Do you know what's happening in Egypt? Are you aware that the Coptic Christians in Egypt who constitute only about 10% of the population there nevertheless have been supporters of the uh, ousting of uh, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, and they are being blamed they 're only ten percent of the population, but they are being heavily blamed and heavily persecuted now in this uprising of the Muslim Brotherhood, and they're seeking out this 10% of the Coptic Christians. And there is significant and harsh persecutions taking place. Now, all along, the Coptic Christians have been subtly persecuted in Egypt. If you wanted to build a mosque, you're free to build a mosque. You're good to go. Here's the permits. If you wanted to build a church, there were all kinds of impossibilities to have to get through. You can't build a church here because it's going to cost you this much for the permits. And you can't get the permits because you've got these hoops to jump through and just making life miserable for the Christians. You do As a Muslim, you're free to go. Christians are not. But now the persecution there is becoming so much more obvious and overt. Conversions that happen from Islam to Christianity are not officially recognized. And the people who commit crimes against Coptic Christians are rarely prosecuted. Coptic Christians face many forms of subtle and blatant persecution there, and it's just growing all the more. Keep your eye on it. It's becoming more and more harsh. There are people who are enemies of the truth because when you're standing in the midst of a land that has been blinded by the god of lies and you are preaching the truth of Jesus Christ you're you're going to you're going to invoke the ire of these people they're going to be angry against the truth it's like when stephen was preaching under the power of the holy spirit and he did a quick synopsis of the history of the Jews through the Old Testament and then just as he's flowing along with all these interesting stories he suddenly snaps forward real quickly to this is the Messiah that was prophesied and you're the ones that killed him and the blood's on your hands and at that point they were moved to anger and they began to stone him because they couldn't handle truth truth is under attack But closer to home, we don't have to stay over in Egypt. Let's get closer to home. We probably all know people, your friends, your family, who become very agitated when you speak the truth. As long as you don't speak the truth, they're okay. And you don't necessarily have to go in there and be obnoxious in their face. Sometimes your very presence annoys them. Because you represent truth. Sometimes your lifestyle is a rebuke to their lifestyle. But even so, let's say you just keep your, your, your mouth shut and, and you're not preachy. Okay? You understand what I mean? You're not preachy to them. Eventually they may get to the point where they ask your opinion. That's the point where you've got to decide if you're going to preach the truth or not. We we go back to the story of Jehoshaphat, Ahab, the story of Ramoth Gilead. And Ahab is itching to have war. He hasn't had a good war in a long time. He just wants to create some war. He's bored. And so he gets this idea, you know, I lost that little piece of land called Ramoth Gilead. Why don't we just go up and take that back? This would be a good time to do that. There's nothing else going on in the kingdom and in the world. And he gets together with Jehoshaphat. They're not necessarily best of friends, but they make this alliance. And they say, let's go take Ramoth Gilead. And Jehoshaphat says, why don't we ask some wise people if this is a good thing to do? And Ahab says, that's good enough. I've got a kingdom full of wise men. So he pulls in all of his own prophets and his seers and his sages. And one by one, these men... Who are nothing but rubber stamps for the king that realize in order to keep their head, you agree with the king. That's the secret to survival here. And one by one, they come before the king, and the king says, What do you think? Should we go take Ramoth Gilead or not? And they say, Oh, king, that's the most brilliant idea we've ever heard. Go take it. It's yours for the taking. Yes, we feel it. We're with this. This is good. And Jehoshaphat, after seeing all these people come in here, just puppets out a string, he says, I smell a rat. One guy even come in there, and he made these horns. He fashioned these horns, because he wanted to be the most notable prophet of all of them. And he said, with these horns, you're going to rot the victory in Ramoth-Gilead. And uh, Ahab is just so flattered. And he's looking at Jehoshaphat and says, see, we can do this. Josh, fat, don't you have anybody else besides your own team here? Anybody objective? And Ahab says, well, I've got one man. His name is Mike, but he's a troublemaker. Why is he a troublemaker? Because he always speaks the truth. Now something is very telling about that, isn't there? And Jehoshaphat says, well, why don't we see what he has to say and, and against his own... Uh, best interest uh, Ahab concedes okay bring him in Micah comes in and Ahab says hesitatingly Micaiah kind of looks at Jehoshaphat watch this watch this you'll see what I mean Micaiah, should we take Ramoth Gilead? And Micaiah says, sure, king, go get it. And the king comes apart at the seams. Who do you think you are? You're lying to me. You never, you never agree with me. I'm telling you with my authority as a king, don't pacify me. Should we take it or not? And Micaiah says, you want the truth? Yes, I want the truth. Here's the truth. You go to take Ramoth Gilead, you won't come back. And I knew. You have to decide if you're going to tell the truth or not. Are you going to pacify the people? Or are you going to tell the truth? We're under pressure today with political correctness to go with the flow and not make waves. And we see a few politicians standing up for godly principles and truth, and it's costing them their political career because they dare to say what they believe the Bible says about these social issues. And they are marginalized, ostracized, voted out, laughed at, ridiculed, scorned, simply because they want to uphold godly values. And the world doesn't want truth. They want compliance. They want agreement. Let's get together with this. So you present the truth and they take out their little penknife knife and they carve it up and they throw it in the fire and say, so much for your truth. What's your God going to do about that? We're fighting this battle today here in the United States to stay true to what we believe in without caving in to revise theology and political correctness. But I am... Imploring my people in Westside, stand for the truth and don't compromise. It's not popular to call sin sin in this society, and it's dangerously close to getting illegal to stand by one's biblical based convictions and state them publicly. Those who speak biblical truth are labeled as hate mongers and intolerant bigots. Truth haters are growing more aggressive and violent than they've ever been before. They are arrogantly taking the passages from the truth and methodically cutting them to ribbons and tossing them into the fire defiantly against God. But God's truth doesn't change Kings and mad dictators can flout the truth. They can burn the Bible. They can thumb their nose at God. But God's truth does not change. The grave has been dug and the eulogy has been read a thousand times. But His truth is still marching on. It does not die. Voltaire had predicted that famous atheist that within 100 years of his death, that Christianity would come to an end. It would be extinct. Nobody would know Christianity within a hundred years of his death. Yet immediately after his death, they took his estate and they made it into a Bible society headquarters because God's truth marches on. Former leader of the Soviet Union of Soviet Socialist Republic Nikita Khrushchev boasted in the 1960's but by 1965 by 1965 he would personally display on television the last Christian Russian. But in Russia today close to 83% of the people claim to be Russian Orthodox Christians because God's truth is marching on. Marx. Lennon, Bertrand Russell, all claimed modern man had outgrown their need for the Bible. We don't need it anymore. We're sophisticated now. But years after the death of these men, the Bible continues to be the best-selling book in the world year after year after year after year. And King Jehoiakim could burn the scroll and put Jeremiah and Barak on the most wanted list. And all that hard work by these two men burned up in a fraction of the time it took to put it together. But God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, go write it down again. (laughs) And this time, put a very special message in there. This is what the Lord says, Jehoiakim. You burn the scroll because it said the king of Babylon would destroy this land and empty it of people and animals. Now, this is what the Lord says about King Jehoiakim of Judah. He will have no heirs to sit on the throne of David. His dead body will be thrown out to lie unburied and exposed to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. And I will punish him and his families and his attendants for their sins. And I will pour out on them and all the people of Jerusalem and Judah all the disasters I promised. For they would not listen to my warnings. Now here's the appropriate explanation for the king's anger. Truth reveals that our actions have consequences. That's why people hate truth. If you do that, this is what will happen. They don't hear that. As though that makes it untrue if they don't listen. As though they change the truth if they burn it. But it doesn't change it. There is maybe an unspoken trend, an undefined trend today The preaching of the gospel message has to be more about just loving people and introducing them to Jesus and getting them saved. And those are absolutely good things. But there's kind of been this honor system among preachers that we don't mention hell because it offends people. So let's don't talk about that. Let's don't talk about sins. Let's let the Holy Spirit work those things out. And I wouldn't want to preach a sermon on hell every Sunday. We wouldn't make a lot of progress. I've got other things I have to preach on. But I'm not going to back down on the truth. We are a temporary being here on earth. And when we're done with this life, we're going to have to spend eternity somewhere. And for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, we have eternal life. But for those who reject him, who don't want to hear the truth, who don't want to respond to this message, there is a hell. I know that's not popular. And I know modern theology tries to do away with that concept and to soften it. How can you soften the rejection of Jesus Christ? How can we soften that? And maybe there's people here today that they're having a hard time finding the incentive to live for God just based on, well, you need to love Him and let Him love you. And maybe there's a few of you, you need to sit on a firecracker. You need to understand that if you're not living for God, there is a hell prepared for those who don't have time to get right with God. Maybe you need to realize that there is a place of torment where they cry out and say, Lord, send somebody to tell my brothers because this is a terrible place to be. Maybe they need to realize there's a consequence for all of your actions. Truth reveals that God has established moral absolutes. And people don't like to hear that. They like to think that society can make up its own ideals and moral standards. That what we used to believe doesn't apply anymore because times have changed. But His truth is marching on. Truth reveal that God's justice demands that if the righteous are rewarded, the wicked must be punished. Truth reveal when this life is over, every man and woman is going to give an answer to God and an account for their life. Truth reveal that there is such a thing as sin that separates man from God. Truth reveal that man is lost and he's under condemnation. And that God provided the ultimate sacrifice in His Son, Jesus Christ. And those who put their trust in Him shall be saved. And it's our responsibility to the truth. To stand strong for the truth. We're not supposed to use it as a club to beat people over the head. But we can't deny it when people challenge us. Truth's under attack today. And you know the people who are ripping it to pieces and throwing it away stand for the truth and don't compromise it don't compromise it, don't water it down don't change it to please your friends and your family and your lifestyle let it fall where it may either you're going to be obedient to it or you're not but don't try and change it to make your life easier the truth is the truth and God's truth in spite of all man's efforts to mess it up and redefine it and change it when it's all said and done, His truth is still marching on would you bow your heads?